Bringing a novel therapeutic to market is an art. Hear Veristat thought leaders as they draw on their specialized expertise to offer insight on timely, relevant topics that impact clinical development, the regulatory landscape, and patient access to these novel therapies. Hello, and welcome to Art Podcasts, Advancing Revolutionary Therapies, a podcast series presented by the Centers of Excellence at Veristat. My name is Kevin Hennigan, Director of North American Regulatory Affairs. I am delighted to continue Season 3, a dedicated series of regulatory podcasts on topics that cover everything from smart regulatory strategies, maintaining continued regulatory compliance, the influence of health authorities on clinical trials, and more. Today, I am joined by Lisa Erickson and Sarah Romer, two of our regulatory CMC strategists here at Veristat, to discuss today's topic, Apples to Apples, Playing the Comparability Game in Biotherapeutics Development. Hi, Kevin. Great to be here. Yes, thanks for having us. We work with a lot of biotherapeutic products here at Veristat, and one of the issues that comes up frequently is assessment of comparability after a process change. Sarah, why are comparability studies required, and why is this such a significant issue for biotherapeutics development as compared to small molecule development? Biotherapeutics are extremely complex macromolecules, and it can be difficult to predict the functional impact of small manufacturing changes to the product using analytical techniques alone. Health authorities expect that a change in the manufacturing process will result in product changes that may not be detected using established release analytical methods. Undetected product changes are considered high risk because they can and have resulted in significant changes to the PK, PD, or immunogenicity profile, and therefore the clinical safety and or efficacy profile of biotherapeutics. The biotherapeutic mantra is, the process is the product. However, changes in manufacturing such as an increase in scale and process optimization, are required as part of development. Additionally, availability of raw materials and a manufacturer's schedule and capacity can also force changes in manufacturing. If it cannot be demonstrated that a product is clinically equivalent to product produced from the previous process, a sponsor can no longer rely on completed animal and clinical studies. Therefore, to minimize repeating non-clinical and clinical studies needed to support process changes, one must plan for and implement a robust comparability plan. Lisa, from your perspective, what are the key aspects of a comparability assessment? Well, Kevin, first, you need to start by assessing the change or the changes being made. I can give a few common examples of these types of changes. First, there's site, manufacturing site, or facility change. You can have cell culture changes or upstream changes, purification changes or changes to the unit operations in the downstream, also formulation changes, and final presentation changes. For example, a lot of times sponsors wish to change the final presentation from a vial to a pre-filled syringe. Oftentimes during development, there may be multiple changes that occur at the same time, which adds another level of complexity to assessing the changes and planning for the comparability assessment. Using a hierarchical approach, you start with assessing the pre and post change material with analytical testing to ensure product quality, followed by biological characterization. 
Determining whether additional in vivo comparability studies are needed can be assessed based upon the extent of differences seen in the analytical and biological characterization testing and the timing during clinical development of when changes are made. If you thoroughly assess the potential risks associated with the changes and have solid product process knowledge, analytical testing alone can often suffice to successfully demonstrate comparability. However, the tricky part is if your analytical testing shows some or slight differences, then you would need to consult with, and there's great guidance out there, ICH-Q5E. It's the guideline on comparability of biotech products subject to changes in their manufacturing process. And it provides further detail around when quality analytical data alone may be insufficient and additional non-clinical or clinical evidence to demonstrate comparability might be warranted. What types of changes are usually considered low risk versus high risk with respect to comparability study requirements? A risk assessment based on the type of change and the potential impact on the product is a critical element of comparability studies. FDA's guidance document on comparability protocols for post-approval changes to CMC is a good source for rules of thumb on assessing the risk of different types of changes. For example, like-for-like changes in reagents or process equipment are generally considered lower risk and do not typically require comparability studies, but should be assessed for potential risk. At the other end of the spectrum, changes in the master cell bank, purification modalities, or changes in manufacturing sites are usually considered to be high risk. Few types of changes merit special mention. Changes to product contact materials are usually considered high risk. Changes to manufacturing steps that are important to virus inactivation or removal will usually trigger a need to repeat viral clearance studies in addition to product comparability evaluation. Finally, for manufacturing site changes, FDA will expect a thorough GMP risk assessment of the new site and not just reliance on the comparability data. Lisa, knowing that comparability is an issue that is likely to come up at some point during development, whether due to scale-up or facility changes or some of these other potential issues that we've already talked about, what can sponsors do to plan ahead for comparability studies? I think it's important that sponsors place an equivalent emphasis early on with their CMC or manufacturing development plans as they do their clinical development plans. In early development, drafting a manufacturing development plan is prudent. The manufacturing plan is not a required component of an IND submission, but it will help you anticipate comparability needs, and it may be a useful tool to facilitate discussions with FDA during development meetings. This planning is absolutely the critical element here. You need to carefully plan out the projected analytical and clinical needs for each stage of development to ensure that enough material can be produced to meet those needs, plus the addition of product retains as required. For example, almost every sponsor will scale up their manufacturing process during the course of development, and scale up inevitably means changes to, at a minimum, your process equipment. You will need more retained material than projected based on prospectively planned development activity. Sponsors we have worked with have had to make changes to manufacturing processes during the course of development to account for unexpected product quality issues such as aggregation, undesirable endotoxin levels, and interruptions in supply of critical reagents. 
Additionally, one should consider if retained storage at low temperatures is needed to extend sample shelf life for comparability testing conducted beyond the long-term storage shelf life. What are the potential ramifications of failing to plan ahead for comparability? Potentially severe. In the worst case, where there are insufficient data on the old product and no remaining material that could be used for additional testing, a sponsor could have to effectively restart development's product, beginning with non-clinical toxicology studies and carrying through into additional clinical trials. The financial and timeline impacts of such requirement would kill most development projects. Less severe consequence, but one that we have seen more frequently, is a requirement for additional clinical data, such as an additional clinical efficacy study or increased sample size for an ongoing study. I have an example from a program that I worked on where we made some very minor process changes as part of a site change and process optimization during phase three. We provided the analytical comparability data alone to FDA, demonstrating comparability between the pre- and post-change material. However, due to a slight increase in a deaminated species in the post-change material, FDA did not agree that we had demonstrated comparability. This was an orphan drug and a new first-in-class biologic regulating platelet production. Due to the complexity of the PKPD interaction of the drug, FDA needed to have further evidence that the minor difference in deamidation was not clinically significant. We ended up working closely with FDA on a PKPD comparability study in 20 patients, along with a commitment to further gather supporting safety and efficacy data in an open-label study. The drug did end up being first cycle approved. However, we did incur a six-month delay in our initial filing date in order to include that clinical PKPD comparability study. How does the phase of development impact comparability requirements? Comparability expectations increase as the product advances through development life cycle. In early development, phase one, or sometimes phase two, a modest in vitro comparability studies sometimes supplemented with non-clinical tox data, is often sufficient to enable development to proceed. In late-stage development, a more robust analytical package is needed, and some amount of clinical comparability is usually expected. The FDA actively discourages sponsors from making process changes in between the completion of pivotal clinical trials and submission of a marketing application. In that situation, most companies may be better served by proposing the desired change in a post-approval supplement to the marketing application. For anticipated post-approval changes, it is often helpful to include a proposed comparability protocol in your BLA submission. If FDA concurs with the design, it can allow for a reduced reporting category, for example, changing from a prior approval supplement to a CBE-30 submission and therefore reduce the timeline impact for post-approval changes. Using something like monoclonal antibodies as an example product class, what types of analytical parameters need to be evaluated in a comparability study? This is a great question, Kevin, but it's important to note that even when we limit it to a single product subclass, the range of analytical tests that may be required or informative is quite broad. That said, we can start with the potency assay for the product, which is always required for comparability studies, as this, in theory, should directly correlate to the clinical efficacy of the product. 
Other assessments of antibody function, such as antigen binding and FC effector function, should be assessed, even if not part of the official potency evaluation for the product. Next, you should look at techniques that evaluate antibody integrity and potential product-related impurities. Attributes such as charge, extent of glycosylation, and aggregation are all critical to antibody function, PKPD, or pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, and immunogenicity. Analytical techniques such as size exclusion chromatography, reducing and non-reducing capillary electrophoresis, and isoelectric focusing are a few of the common methods used. Post-translational modification should be assessed, although some differences in these parameters may be tolerable if functional parameters of the product are unaffected. One example is with charge heterogeneity. There can be a range of heterogeneities for a given monoclonal antibody or therapeutic protein. A change in charge heterogeneity could alter the drug's PK and tissue distribution. However, there are some differences that may not be clinically relevant and are well documented in the literature. One example is C-terminal lysine residues on an IgG1 heavy chain of a monoclonal antibody, which is delivered intravenously. Since the bloodstream contains carboxypeptidase enzymes, which quickly remove lysine residues, variation in this attribute is not clinically relevant. The point here being is that comparability risk needs to be assessed holistically, taking into account the clinical indication, the mode of administration of the drug, and mechanism of action. Finally, analytical tests that may be relevant to the specific process change, such as tests for process-related impurities, may be necessary. How comparable is comparable? What they usually mean is, what limits do you need to set and meet in your analytical studies in order to successfully declare that you've established comparability between pre- and post-change material? This is a very difficult question to answer, as demonstrated by Lisa's earlier example. Without diving into the details of a specific product and proposed change, the ICH Q5E guideline lays out some general principles. The key point relevant to this question is that pre-change and post-change products do not need to be identical, but should be similar enough that any differences will have no adverse impact on either the safety or efficacy of the drug. Quantifying that level of similarity into criteria for a comparability study requires a risk assessment that is parameter and product specific. Some differences, such as significant loss of target binding potential, are clearly very problematic, while others, such as elimination of a product-related impurity, may be clinically meaningless or even beneficial. In cases where there is insufficient information to predict whether a given magnitude of shift in quality attributes will have an adverse effect on product performance, you may need to further evaluate the impact in either non-clinical or clinical studies. So I did want to wrap up or, or touch on one last topic before we wrap up today, and that's stability studies. With respect to stability studies in a comparability program, what types of conditions need to be evaluated and over what period of time? Accelerated and stress conditions are often considered the most informative for stability comparisons. Finding that pre- and post-change products have equivalent degradation profiles supports a comparability determination. However, even when degradation profiles are similar, real-time, real-temperature studies are still needed to fully evaluate the post-change product. 
In terms of study duration, three to six months of real-time data in combination with accelerated condition data can be sufficient to allow the post-change product to be introduced into clinical trials, particularly if the product is still in early development. In later stage development or for a commercial product, long duration stability data may be needed of a year or even more, and that's going to be dependent on your risk analysis. Well, on that very stable foundation, we will wrap up for today. I want to thank our CMC strategists, Lisa Erickson and Sarah Romer, for joining me today and contributing their insights and expertise to the podcast. If you have questions about the information you've heard today or about any aspect of pharmaceutical product development, you can reach out to us through the links available on the Veristat website. Also, be sure to subscribe to the ART podcast on your favorite player so you can get notified when new episodes become available. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to ART Podcasts on your favorite podcast player today.